Hey y'all, welcome back to uh, the Rabbit Hole Show. Um, first recording of the new year, 2024. So happy new year. Um, glad to be back. Been off for about a month, a uh, month and a half maybe. Um, so ready to get back into recording and um, putting out episodes weekly, hopefully. But um have a guest that just uh, connected with yesterday. Um, Jake is his name, but he's got a um, artist name. What was it? Kalanoda. Kalanoda is his artist name. Um, shout out to his mom, my mom, for connecting us. Um, I think they're in the same Sunday school class, I believe. Something like that. I, I think so. I have no clue. I um, got to ask. But yeah, woke up, saw a text yesterday. And I was like, I need to get an episode out, but didn't know. I mean, there's a lot of people that I've been talking to about recording and woke up and saw, I was like, all right, this is it. So, um, in the new studio, um, first one of the year. So, uh, excited, um, just to hear, um, Jake Kalanota's story and, um, um, uh, thank y'all for just tuning in, um, so yeah, I'm gonna just turn it over to you and let you share your story um, and just have a conversation as you share it. <laughs> so no specific question. No, I mean, I think I'll... about how. Um. Yeah, like I gotta, I gotta take a second. We're kind of just winging this here. Let's let's pick a topic. Okay. First. Um. So, my story. I mean, it's all over. It's like everywhere. just kind of like mine is. Um, so for me, um, like I have ADD and that was an issue growing up as a child in school. And, um, over the years as I, um, went up grades, school became more challenging. And I compared myself to, um, other peers, um, friends. And that was kind of the root of a lot of my problems. Um, just comparing myself and feeling less than, um, to people. Um, now I didn't compare myself on the basketball court, but I knew I wasn't going to the NBA. So, but right. <clears throat> school feeling smart, stupid, that was something I always struggled with and, um, never knew really how to cope. Um, so that's kind of looking back from my story and journey. I would say that's like a root of where my issue started and kind of compounded on. Um, so for, I guess to start out episode 86, um, looking back at your childhood, um, what are some things that you could see that kind of formed some habits, um, struggles as a teenager, <laughs> adult, okay. um, so we're going all the way back yeah. to the beginning. Um, a lot of it's hard to remember, and a lot of it I've intentionally blocked out for a really long time. But um, I guess for some perspective here, I'm 31 now, and even over the last 10 years, a lot of that stuff from my childhood has kind of faded. Some of it just because it's been so long, and some of it because I just didn't really want to deal with it. Some of it because I have dealt with it and I'm like moved on from it. But if I were to trace back like where it all started, I probably couldn't like pinpoint one thing, but I was the middle child am the middle child. 
and I have every symptom of the middle child, fullest extent. And growing up, a lot of, just a lot of isolation, I think, and feeling like nobody knew anything about me. I didn't even barely know myself. I was like the creative type and I was really weird. And that wasn't fully accepted or really accepted at all um, at home. But, you know, looking back, I can see a little more about how some of it is concerning as a parent because to me it was just weird. Like, I like this or I like that. But mm-hmm. um, I guess I'm trying to be vague because I know my mom is going to be listening <laughs> to this. But, um, yeah, so there was there was definitely a sense of hopelessness and isolation um, just feeling really weird at home. Just feeling kind of like the awkward or I don't want to say not meant to be child, but just you didn't know where you're, where you belonged in the family kind of. Yeah. But also just not really sure if I was, if anybody cared about me or I, I know at this point in my life, looking back, I know for sure that my parents did care about me a lot, but they definitely did not understand me like at all. I mean, um, there's no manual. There is no manual for a parent. To- right. And, and my mom was like young, way younger than I am now. I think when she had me, so mm-hmm. I mean, thinking about where I'm at right now, if I had a kid, who knows? So I'm, this isn't like a, a knock parent on suck the pa- yeah. kind of conversation. I mean, every parent makes mistakes. Of course. That's, that's a fact. hundred percent they do. And it's part of, it's just part of how things go. But I definitely, you know, sometimes like whether it's a parent child relationship or any other kind of relationship, if somebody is so different from you that you can't even like wrap your head around what kind of person they are. I've met people like that. Mm-hmm. I've met lots of people where I'm like, I just don't understand you as a person. I don't Correct. understand how you operate. Some people get like upset about something that I don't find important. And then vice versa. I might get upset about something that they don't understand is important. So all that being said, not about who's at fault or whatever. My parents did not understand me. They they had zero clue and they seemed to have a really good understanding of the other kids. Like, I guess they just kind of your siblings as, like a academic you know, book smart and one was athletic Not necessarily. Um, I used to think I was really stupid, but I actually realized I was pretty smart, but just not in like the The academic kind of way. Correct. And I'm a horrible test taker. Oh, I'm terrible. Ridiculously horrible test taker. I don't know how to study. I don't either. I was the type who would not know how to study. And I would study the like what I thought was important was never on the test. And I mean, I oh, can I, I can memorize yeah. stuff like history. I could I was good at or math because I knew there was a certain step. But when it came to English or whatever, I just couldn't. I wasn't good at taking tests. And then a lot of it was my anxiety would kick in oh, yeah. um, of, oh, I'm going to fail this test um, or I have to get an A to get this in the class um, or Johnny over here studied five minutes and he always gets an A and I study for 10 hours and I I still get an F or a D. And if I get a C, I'm happy, but everyone's like, oh, you're stupid. Or at least I thought that. 100%. I I used to hate seeing that 
I was never, I wasn't good at like just being happy for other people as a kid <laughs> because there were some kids, really good kids in school that were really smart and they would just pass tests with flying colors. And I felt so dumb mm-hmm. and I was so jealous of them, but I noticed a lot of it was just their calmness. Like I think my anxiety got in the way of everything. Oh, like, 100%. You, know, you overthink something. It's like when somebody says, don't think about an elephant or whatever. Of you're going to think about, about like, I literally just thought about an elephant. Yeah, you have to. It's <laughs> inevitable. Or like there's this much time left for the test. And you're starting to calculate, or at least for me, I would start to calculate. I have this many questions I need to do. So I'm taking yeah. five minutes to calculate how exactly, much time. Exactly. Like, you think ahead so far that you can't think at all about what's happening right now. Or I would procrastinate. And then I would cram study all night the night before, not get much sleep, if any Definitely at all. Done that. And then I'd wake up or go straight to class. This was primarily in college. And then I'd be so tired that I'd be like, what the hell is this test even on? Yeah. Like I studied all night. How do I not? And then I'm like, I don't even know what subject this is. Because <laughs> I didn't sleep at all. <laughs> yeah. So there's Damn. like, yeah. So I get that 100%. Yeah. That's definitely an irritating thing, but I think in probably all, or at least almost all cases where kids struggling in school, there's usually other things going on. Mm -hmm. And I remember my history teacher asking, he like stopped me on the way out the door. I think this is in like ninth grade or something. And he was like, Hey, is everything good? And I'd never talked to him really before. I'm like, yeah, why? Why are you asking me that? Why are you singling Mm -hmm. me out? He was like, everything good at home? I was like, but it wasn't. (laughs) But I guess he just noticed that I was really, really, really struggling in school. But he saw that I was working hard. Which so so he wasn't like accusatory. He was just correct. And that's something my dad always said. And that's where we butted heads a lot. Because there was times in school where I didn't give, you know, a lick about it. And wouldn't study, wouldn't put forth any effort and would get that the grade I deserve. But then there was times where I really tried and still wouldn't get the best grade. And my dad would always get on me about, you know, do your best. And there was times where I was like, I really did my best. Yeah. And, but he was, and he never cared if I got the C or an A or, but as long as I did my best. best. But then there was times where I really didn't try and I was like, I did my best. And so it was, it wasn't that he was accusing me, but it was just, he wanted me to do my best. And so that's why we butted heads. Cause there was times where he thought I didn't do my best when I really did and vice versa. And I mean, we've talked about it now, but um, yeah, so that was just really tough for me. And then an example, like you said, you had a teacher who noticed, um, you know, and asked if everything was okay. I had a teacher, this was seventh grade, won't say her name, um, but she, I can't remember if she reached out to my parents first or what, but she was like, uh, I think you need medication, like for ADD. And that's something that stuck with me. Yes, I did need it looking back. And when I got on medication, like, consistently it helped but it was just the way that I, from what I remember now looking back as a seventh grader 
pretty traumatic saying, well, I guess I am stupid if I have a teacher saying, oh, you need medication. Um, So that was another thing that kind of um, I struggled with in middle school. Like, oh, I guess I am stupid. I have a teacher saying I need medication, but then I didn't want to take the medication. So, but in college I got on Adderall and that's a whole nother story because it led to my addiction. Um, and Oh yeah. Um, and the first time I did Adderall, I got it in the library at app, loved it, went to my, uh, uh, primary care physician and he was getting ready to retire. And I was over 18, but he was still like a child's doctor or, um, whatever. And I was like, I mean, I struggle in school. Someone gave me this pill and it worked wonders. And from when I was in seventh grade and got tested, he was like, yeah, you do have it. All right, we'll put you on Adderall. And I mean, that was the start of <laughs> yeah, um, just kind of like the opioid crisis and stuff. But yeah, huh. so for me, it was Adderall to my addiction or part of it. Um, so, I mean, that was a rabbit hole moment. Um, but yeah, that's uh, things a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, you know, what's weird though, is like talking to you now, even about my like anxiety or ADHD, because I was diagnosed with both of those. Mm-hmm. Those seem so, it feels so insignificant to like what I really went through, like what I've really faced. And also I'm realizing as I'm talking to you now, that I don't ever talk about my home life. I talk about usually as far back as I'll go is like, the the first correctional facility that I went to, which was thirteen. Okay, so Pretty juvenile. Sure yeah, yeah. Um, and that is where that's like where it starts for me. There's a lot of things I blocked out from my memory there, which a lot of people do block out, as you oh, yeah. alluded to. That when I said child, you're like, there's a lot I don't remember, and um, I just started my second semester of um counseling or substance abuse counseling. And we talked about that last semester some, and even in the first week of school, we talked about, you know, people blocking out certain things and not necessarily on purpose. Like you said, you know, some are purpose, some are not. Um, you just block it out because it was so traumatic. Well, to me, like that part of my life did, didn't exist because I never talk about it. Correct. So even th- trying to think back to like a day in school, like whoa like something else comes up that i just remembered like i have not thought about that in like 15 years and i don't want to say that right now yeah there's so much that i do not want to say especially as it relates to family correct and um all right so we'll start um sounds like 13 age 30 i was gonna say age 13 (laughs) first um um juvenile detention center um so start there so First off, this place. No, I'll start. I'll start a little bit farther back. So I was I had snuck out one night at 13 years old, was with some friends. We were I was experimenting with drugs really young, Mm -hmm. 13 years old. And then I went to bed at like. Maybe two or three in the morning at your house, at my my regular house, like I came back in and then an hour later or so, I remember waking up to these two dudes 
And I had no idea that this was coming. But I wasn't sure if I was being kidnapped. Like, they were kind of being really nice. So I was like, I don't think this is a kidnapping. (laughs) But it kind of is because they're putting me in cuffs and telling me to, like, pack a toothbrush and that's it. Like, a couple pairs of underwear and, like, a toothbrush and that's it. My parents were standing there. And there's a lot about this that I'm going to leave out on purpose. But... I was very confused and kind of at peace with it because home life was so bad mm-hmm. that I was like really happy to get out of there. And also at 13, you got to remember for anyone listening, if you don't remember being 13, things are so much bigger than they really are. Mm-hmm. So even a small insignificant thing feels like a lot. But something like being kidnapped or anything like this that might feel like that's happening is so surreal that it's like, whoa, this is weird. Like, I didn't know if it was an adventure or like, is this going to be really bad? I remember my parents being in the room and like not really saying much. If they did, I don't remember. Yeah, they kind of drug me to the car and then like they put the child lock on and they're dragging me through the airport and they took my shoelaces because they said that it would be a weapon or could be or harm yourself or I could harm myself. And this is so, at a pu- an airport that that an airport. And they're t- I'm like so confused. Did, I wasn't screaming or anything. I wasn't. Had they told you at this point from transporting you from your bedroom of your house to the airport, what was going on? No. Are you still? Nobody in- said anything. I was so confused and my parents seemed to understand what was happening and they looked kind of like blank faced, but they weren't like doing anything. So I'm like, I'm probably, it seems to be on purpose. Like, I think this is supposed to be happening, but yeah, I remember them dragging me through the airport and it felt like they were trying to dislocate my shoulders. To be honest, they were like (laughs) dragging me and I was like, I can't walk. And they're like, walk faster, yelling at me and cussing me, walk faster, walk faster. I'm like, I can't, you took my laces. I don't know how to do this. And they put me in a seat, you know, like I didn't know where I was flying. I remember landing in Atlanta. This is my first time on a plane. So that was fun. <laughs> I remember landing in Atlanta and being like, oh, I'm in Atlanta. I didn't know what a layover was. I was 13. I'd never. Yeah. I mean, you've never flown before. Yeah. But I had been to Atlanta. So I'm like, OK, cool. I'm in Atlanta. And then we got on another plane. I'm like, why are we, are we going back home? I didn't understand. I've never been to an airport then we landed in Las Vegas and I was like, holy shit, I'm in Las Vegas. This is so cool. Yeah. What is a 13 year old going to do in Vegas? I have no clue, but Nothing. I thought <laughs> that I was going to become like some kind of badass in Vegas. I don't know what I was thinking. Run the sin city. Yeah. And I didn't even consider the fact that I only had like a toothbrush and underwear and like and no shoelaces and no shoelaces and one shirt that I'm wearing. Like, what am I going to do in Vegas? But they put me in another car child locked it um we drove i want to say about four hours Mm. it's been a long time to canab utah so look it up if you've never heard of vegas to canab utah um it's a i believe a single stoplight town in the middle of nowhere and unlike the east if you live on the east coast there's tons of small towns even small towns are surrounded by other towns that is not the case out west um it's very much like there's one town and that's it. And you drive 40 miles, 50 miles, maybe a hundred to get to the next town. So, 
you're stocking up on groceries, everything you need for the week. Well, you normally you would, but I wasn't doing that. Yeah, because... no, normally in a town like that. <laughs> yeah, you would definitely do that in a town like that. They had one gas station, I think, one grocery store. I think they've grown since then, but I think they said that there was like 3,000 people in the town at the time. And there are smaller towns out here, but that's like the only town anywhere near there. Mm. Like their high school, I think, had like 200. So anyways, I'm like trying to remember. I haven't talked about this in so long. I'm trying to remember the chain of events. But I remember being like, interrogated when I got there and them trying to ask me a bunch of questions and me asking where am I and what am I doing here? Why am I here? But they were like, shut up. We're the ones asking questions. They were really aggressive. And I remember kind of laughing and being like, okay, we're the ones asking questions. (laughs) And they're like, you know, coming from my throat, telling me that I'm being disrespectful and that it's not going to look good for me there and all this stuff. I just didn't understand what was happening. But um yeah, I could probably go on for hours and hours and hours about that experience, but all I'll say is it was a 9-month program and I was there for I think 2 years. Remember? So it's a 9-month program a long and you were there about 2 years. Yeah, I kept getting in trouble and having to restart the program and well it was it was so it was essentially like a program for troubled yeah. Teens. Troubled teens. They called it a boarding school. And up until I left, I thought that that's what a boarding school was. It was not a boarding school. They shaved my head. They put us in these like ridiculous outfits and stuff, but it wasn't like a preppy. I forget what we wore, but it was not good. It wasn't like a fun experience. It was torture kind of. For it was it. torture. They locked us in. It's a. I remember them saying, like, oh, it's a 10,000-pound lock. You're never getting out of here. That Everyone had to swipe their fob to get out. Like, what is this place? So a lot of psychological, maybe not abuse, but fear. They were instilling there, fear. There was a lot of abuse. That's was, another okay. one of those things that, at the time, I didn't know it was abuse because I thought that I was just, this is oh, this is what a boarding school is. This sucks ass. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was legitimate abuse because they would... They'd force us to work out until we threw up. Some kids were like having seizures and just a lot of bad things were happening. There was a lot of like rape. Staff would mm. rape the students. There's something that I recently saw. I think it's on Netflix that sounds similar to this. There's a lot of stuff out there. Um, a, a lot I don't of know these. the name of the documentary that's on Netflix, but it sounds like it's very similar and the reason that one kind of got exposed is because there was a death of a girl that got there like two days prior to her death because they made her run for so long and she was exhausted or something. But yeah, I'm not surprised. And that opened my eyes to, cause I've been to a lot of rehab centers and different stuff and talked to a lot of people who have been to rehab centers, but I've never talked to someone who had been to a teen rehab facility treatment program and i watched that documentary a week two weeks ago and it was just very eye-opening and alarming that i mean but even in my studies we've talked about how there are professional counselors therapists that do more harm than good 
hundred percent. But like, until I saw that documentary series, I was like, holy shit. Like there's children that are going and their parents are uh, sending them there to hope in hopes to reform kind of. Yeah. And they're sending them there as a last resort. Correct. They don't know and, how to help them. And now their child is basically getting F for life because they're getting raped and just abused, you know, and, it was very shocking. I can't remember the name of it. But it's on Netflix. That, um, I think I know what you're talking about. And there's other ones coming out about stuff like that. Because there's so much corruption in these facilities. We were essentially free labor. Like they would have us fixing up the staff's houses and stuff because like that. Because you're, because they're feeding you and you have board, room and board for free, but it might not be the best conditions, but that's yeah, how they can like, get away with free how labor. Get or like, oh, you're, you, said the wrong thing to say, or like you had an altercation. Now your punishment is you have to like fix the pipes in my house and they'd have us tearing out the walls and shit. Like just at doing 13. <laughs> yeah. At a really young age. And we all, they would be like, okay, now you're in trouble again. You have to get another 500 hours of community service. And it was just helping them half the time, which is abuse. It is absolutely abuse, but I don't want to say that everyone was bad because there were, a handful of people in that place that I feel confident that they were there because the right they reasons. wanted to help troubled kids because they were troubled. And there's always good apples and bad apples yeah. in a company treatment center, a jail, a church, wherever you are, there's always good and bad. Definitely good and bad everywhere. That doesn't surprise me so much looking back. What does surprise me is that they got away with so much for so long. And I still can't believe some of the things I had to see and experience there. Some things I'll probably never say out loud. Yeah. And some things I'm still not sure if it's real or not because it was so surreal at the time. Um, so with that being said, were you allowed to, um, you know, communicate with your parents. Uh, what was that like? Cause I, I believe it was once a month we were able to call our parents, but they were in the room with us because they would control the conversation. That's what I was going to ask. Cause they didn't want you to say, Hey, counselor, therapist, whatever did this to me. Right. Um, so you were basically like a false imprisonment. I started to say something once I was really bold. <laughs> And the guy like basically grabbed my arm and just gave me a look like that sentence. Yeah. He didn't have to say anything. I knew that I was probably going to get my face bashed in. And there's, there was a lot of that happening. A lot of people getting really abused. (laughs) So how were you able to, I mean, you said it was a nine month program. It, you were there for two years. It sounds like, it was almost impossible for anyone to complete this program just because of pretty much. I think they tried to keep us there. So how did you, it was set up to fail. That's what it sounds like. So how were you able to get out after two years or, um, basically by bullshitting my way through, I just, I was on my best behavior. I would submit, even though I was being a hundred percent abused, I just, you had to play the game. Correct. Get out of there. Yeah. Which I I guess is kind of like that. I was going to, I mean, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, you get put in the hole for seven days, 14, 20, whatever, you know, and, and there's good COs and then there's ones who you really just want to, of course, they're people and they're humans. Everyone in there is a person. And a lot of them are like, 
tormenting you is they don't see you as a person. They see you as an inmate, a number. Um, and you really just want to teach them a lesson, but if you do, then you're going to get a strike. And so, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, I don't want to say powerless. it's a game, but it's, it's a, it's a it mental is. mindset game. Well, it's also not rehabilitation of any kind because no. there, I remember them opening the door after I was like graduated from the program. And mind you, we didn't have cell phones, zero access to internet, zero access to anything on the outside world. And your no cell money. phones were controlled or your phone calls were controlled. Yeah. So we literally didn't know. I didn't know who the president was. I had no clue what was happening. And then I remember like walking outside for the first time on my own. They took my ankle bracelet off and everything. But hold on, you said ankle bracelet. So they would track you there. Yeah, for the first. Actually, you know what? That was only the first like two months I had. I mean, still though, as a thirteen-year-old. Yeah, I was like, "What is this? I don't know what this and is it's for." It's not like you committed a crime or were taken to a juvenile detention center. Mm-mm. Your parents contacted this whatever yeah and wanted you to go there as a last resort to you know help you change your ways and well they they, said they (laughs) said it was because i was a runaway risk okay which i don't know why they said that because i never once threatened to run away or even alluded to the fact that i was going to run away i was a little erratic so it's not that i wouldn't have but but i don't know why they drew that conclusion yeah, yeah but they put the ankle bracelet on and it hurt really bad they had it really tight it like really messed up my ankle, but they had me sleeping in the hallway on the, on a mattress, but the mattress is like that thin and I'm on the floor in the hallway. I wasn't allowed to talk for the first two weeks. Literally, I was not allowed to speak unless I rose my hand and they said, what do you need? I was allowed to ask for water and go to the bathroom, but I was not allowed to speak. First two weeks. And this was like standard procedure there. It was weird. There needs to be a document series on this. I know. This, you, um, get out at 15 mm-hmm. what's next do you go home or i was actually 16 when i got or 16 out. okay so now i'm trying to remember what the timeline was but i do know i was 16 so when i when they let me out i was like i don't know where to go or what to do i don't know how to function they it's basically like a psychologist out there probably would be like that's not at all what that is to me it kind of reminds me of stockholm syndrome where you're mm-hmm. like so used to being used and abused and trapped and you're like, you can't do anything. And then when you get your freedom, you don't know what to do with it. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, so no my skills, they don't give you the skills. My, um, therapist, um, was telling me, I mean, yeah, it's your, um, you know, institutionalized essentially. Um, so there was a guy that, um, cause he used to work in prisons as a therapist and, I forgot how long this individual had been incarcerated for, but he uh, got released and that was an ordeal on getting released. Like he ran away when they were walking him out and hid under a desk because he was so scared of going into the real world because all he knew was incarceration. And he um, eventually got out and um, within a couple months um, had robbed a gas station or can, you know, something, um, to go get sent back no in and, um, that's super common. Oh, it's very common. Um, you know, and, um, there was a shootout and sadly he didn't, uh, make it. But the point of that was 
that's all you know and you're accustomed to that and you're comfortable with that even though a person that has been free their whole life would be like that's insanity but that's all that individual knows that's all you know that's all you know correct i was fine with it i had i had friends in there really good friend i mean you're forced to form like deep bonds with these people oh yeah and i had some really good friends that would have taken a bullet for me i taken a bullet but leaving was like leaving all of that it's like i don't want to leave now i'm safe in here like they feed me get food half the time the milk is literally like solid yeah coming out <laughs> like of the freezer gelatin yeah or no not for the freezer because it's old it's oh, like all of that okay gelatinous <laughs> but yeah i was okay with it it was like i don't have to i'm forced to work every day but i don't have to make my own schedule that's no i'm being abused I'm and like, for oh. me that was i was accustomed to that and felt safe with that yeah. um because I, when i was not in a rehab or jail or the psych ward I had to make my own decisions. I wasn't good at making smart decisions because I would get in trouble um, or end up in the hospital or something would happen. But when I was in those institutions, I was being, like you said, told what to do. I had a certain time to eat. I didn't prepare my meal, so I didn't have to think about what I wanted to eat. You know, and it was always scary when I was getting ready to get released because I was like, oh, no. Like, and so that anxiety would build up because I was like, I'm getting ready to get released. I don't know what I need to do. Like, I, this is what I feel safe, just like you said. Yeah, it is weird. But kind people, like, if they've never experienced it, they won't understand that. Um, and everyone's experience is so different, too. I correct. can't speak on prison because I've never been. And I can't speak on all the correctional facilities because they're all totally different. I've heard very different there's stories. There's great ones. There's terrible ones. It, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I'm sure you've heard about the Gypsy Rose situation. Yeah, that, that's a hot topic right now. And I'm definitely like wondering how she's going to operate outside of that because she's never been remotely free at all. I mean, her mother controlled her and yeah, she had what leukemia or she didn't have it, but her mother said leukemia. She, I, I procedures can't procedures that like they removed yeah. her saliva glands. We were talking about this at iron tribe today. Um, so if you haven't listened to Zach Watson's episode, I don't know which episode it was, but the owner of South End Iron Tribe. Um, so I went to work out today and we were talking about Gypsy Rose and uh, the removal of her saliva gland or what is it? Saliva glands. Yeah, it's saliva glands. Um, and but yeah, so she was controlled and under her mother's um, control, essentially. And then. She was in prison for seven years, which I don't understand how she got a seven-year sentence with what she did. I mean, it I might have been for the better though, because she was able to be rehabilitated. I was going to say she kind of—I do kind of understand that. And now she gets released, and she has all this. She's like a celebrity now, yeah. so it's. I'm yeah, I'm intrigued to hates. see how uh, her life is and how she reacts, especially in the public eye. Correct. And with this new husband, or I guess her first husband, she was had an ex-boyfriend that killed her mom. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to see, uh, is this what happened within the last three weeks, two weeks, yeah. I think? Yeah, it was very recent. Um, and I know there'll be a document series. Document. There is already one. They're, on, they're like making episode three right now. Okay, so yeah. So I mean, somebody's already capitalizing on it, and somebody's going to be way richer than her off of her story. Yep. That's um, another conversation, that, but yeah, but um, <laughs> somebody's making money. Yeah. So, um, 
back to you for a little bit. Um, so looking back now, how did that first um, program you were in at a young age, um, how did that shape you as you grew older with, you know, it uh, pretty much shaped my adulthood Yeah, because even though I know my mom's listening to this, I, I know that well, your mom's heard every episode. I don't know how many episodes she knows my story. She listens so, to it. I so know she that knows the, <laughs> she knows the good and the bad and, and the terrible of my stories. So, but I know it's different when you're like, Oh, my mom might not know this part or yeah, there's whatever. so much I'm so, not saying, but I also, I don't even remember what I was about to say, but, a shape it, to your adulthood. Something about how I know it wasn't my mom's fault <laughs> or my dad's fault. Like it's not their fault. But like the, 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 well, I guess, yeah. Um, cause some could think, well, they sent you there. So it's their fault, but they had no idea that this program was going to be right. abusive. And, Oh, that's, that's what I was going to say is that I thought for a long time until my mid twenties that, they sent me there because they were trying to get rid of me because I was too high liability. And you were the middle child as you spoke on at the beginning yeah. that you were kind of, they did not, not didn't know what to do with you, but you just didn't, you didn't feel you knew where your place was and people right. didn't I know already how to felt alone and isolated. And they're like, we don't even want you, which is so not we can what they send said. you to this place. And that's how I perceived it. Correct. And especially every- how corrupt that place was thinking they knew that. I mean, they had no idea how corrupt this place was. And with any relationship, I was talking um, to someone the other night, um, and I forgot the context. But she was like, you know, I perceive it this way. And I was like, well, I perceive it this way. So you can look at the exact same thing or the scenario or, you know, a text message or an article but you can have two people who perceive it totally completely two different ways, but Not you're looking at the like, exact same thing. Like, especially with trauma, you start filling in the gaps with false memories. I wonder sometimes what's real and what's not. When and, I look back. and there's some things that definitely false memory, you know, and I'm like, did that happen? Or, you know, but then there's a lot of times where my sister, mom, or dad will even, you know, share something. I'm like, I don't remember that at all. And they're like, yeah, that definitely happened. And I thought, yeah, I thought yeah. it happened so, a totally different way. Oh yeah. But that's trauma. hundred percent. It gets really confusing. Especially I mean, when you have traumatic event on top of traumatic event. Yeah. And they're compiled. Then, yep. When you're already like afraid of somebody or something and then somebody threatens your life, it's like even worse. And then you do something that you is way out of character and you're like, I never would have done that in my, you know, sane mind. Yeah. But you're paranoid and all you have all this other stuff going on that it makes you react a certain way. And they'd be like, well, this, you know, he was he was never that type of person. But when you're in a paranoid state, even sometimes somebody when I talk about it, which isn't often when, when I'm talking to somebody about that experience, they'll tell me usually like, you really should forgive yourself for blah, blah, blah. Like you're, I know you're not that person. I really was that person. Yeah. I was a piece of shit. Yeah. I was 
awful. Uh-huh. And I mean, I can forgive that version of myself, but I was awful. Like I would if I were to meet that kid, you would not want to be I would him. not want to be around him at all. I would want nothing to do with. But him. then that also, if you have kids one day or a role model mentor to someone that's younger, that allows you to, you know, help a troubled teen or a son or whatever because definitely you experienced, you know, that shithead kid that you once were, but you've grown from that, but that's a part of you. Just like my story is a part of me, but I know what I don't want to be again. So therefore, even if I don't want to be around them, and if it's my kid, I at least like, I got to remember what I, and you know how to help guide them to reform them or get them away from those certain habits yeah, and remembering what it's like from that perspective. Because at the time, Correct. all I could perceive was that nobody cares at all. Nobody gives a flying fuck about me or whether I live or die. Nobody cares. And that's literally the lens that I saw reality through. I was like, nothing matters. I'm a waste of space. I just thought I was awful. Somebody feels that way. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like... I mean, you're entitled to feel that way, but... That's BS. I mean, that's the re- purpose of this podcast for someone listening that feels like they're a waste of space. You know, they're taking up air that someone else needs. Yeah, That's bullshit because you're here on this earth for a reason. You have purpose. And there's a lot of people that care about you when you don't care about yourself, even if you feel like they don't care about you. Yeah. Well, also not wanting to be around somebody doesn't mean you don't. Like my <laughs> my sister, for instance, for um instance, um, when I was going through all my stuff, I thought she hated me, um, wanted nothing to do with me, embarrassed uh, by me, but she had to set up boundaries to protect herself, um, for the fear of what um could happen to me, um, and I was a liability to bring around her friends because she didn't know. Oh, yeah. Who she was going to get. She didn't know who she was going to get. Um, which personality. Was I going to be sober? Was I going to be angry? Was I. She didn't know. Um, and she's not one to give you hugs. And say I love you. And so. In my state of mind. I'm like. My mind's running. I'm like. Well she obviously doesn't love me. She wishes she had a different brother. She doesn't want me around. So there's all this stuff, but that was my perception of how she felt towards me. But in reality, she loved me. I don't want to say more than my mom and dad, but she loved me, and but she practiced tough love and set healthy boundaries for herself, even though that was probably, you know, some very hard boundaries she had to set and at times didn't want to set those, but knew she needed to. Yeah, definitely. So it's, even as a parent, if you have, kids that are danger got to do something about it yeah and there's the kid just put everyone in danger yeah and you can't let them walk over you because you're an individual you can only control yourself and you want to enjoy life you know but you also want the best for your child but then there's at a certain point you've done all you can do. And, you know, there's, you know, family members that 
you know, have to, you know, block that child or whatever it may be, because as you said, you know, they're potentially could hurt a family member or, um, just enabling that, you know, so there's times where you have to lock your door and say, you can't come in my house. And that's, I mean, I, I'm not a parent, but I couldn't imagine having to lock your child out of the house. Um, I feel like it's very situational. Correct. And I, I do think I'm not going to say whether this is my parents or not, because I don't know how it was from their perspective, but a lot of parents do seem to kind of take that as like the, the shortcut version. Mm -hmm. I, there definitely needs to be more understanding and more grace and more love and all that. But at the same time, like I said, I'm 31 now, five years ago, if I had a kid, you know, I don't, I don't think I would be able to do everything right either, but it's also a generational thing because we have access to knowledge that they didn't have. Correct. We know way more about, like, I feel like everybody's a psychologist now, basically. Like you can I mean, just you find anything the, about it. It's at your fingertips. Yeah. All of it is right on your phone. You can you can learn so much just from looking something up in the moment, which is good. And then also, there's good a bad. lot of bad. Yep. Um. Yeah. So, what has your you know um, adulthood looked like? Struggles that listeners may have that um, feel like you know I'm the only one going through this. Um, you know, you talked about being on a TV show. I know there's a lot of stuff with that regards that we can't talk about. Um, but just what has adulthood looked like for you, especially, you know, having that two year um, abusive treatment center um, that, as you said, kind of shaped you into adulthood. Um, so what, what has that been like? You know, you're 31 now, and so that was what, 17, life. 17, yeah, 17 years ago about? Yeah, when I first got there. So now my life looks like I'm I'm constantly, I feel like I'm still like 13. Sometimes, I really do. Sometimes I just feel like I'm, I'm always looking for that safety again. Ever since the facility, I'm constantly looking for that feeling of safety again even though it's incredibly toxic because comfortable mm-hmm. uh, you don't like have to worry about what's going on outside of it. You only have to worry about what's right in front of you. I'm like, I feel like I'm subconsciously seeking that everywhere I go. I'm like waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. or like I have almost no motive, like self motivation. I have to use so many strategies just to get myself to the gym or get myself to eat well or get myself to do accomplish anything really. But it's weird as an adult doing that because I feel like I'm literally just chasing that feeling again, mm-hmm. trying to get to that feeling of safety. When I left the facility, so many of those kids, so many of them are dead now. Like, I don't know if it'd be as much as half, but it probably, I don't know. I'm not going to say the numbers. There's but I mean, a lot yeah, of I would, and I wasn't there, but I would say it'd be safe to assume at least half i mean a large a number of a lot i mean so many of them got in trouble i know personally multiple of them who were shot in just gang-related activity or drug deal gone bad um and that was like for so many years after the facility i'd, I'd be friends with them on facebook it's like there goes another there goes another that's there how goes it was another. you know 
I can relate to that because for a while I felt like I was going to a funeral every month. Yeah. And it was either suicide and overdose, you know, gang activity, whatever it may be. And I mean, it was weird because funerals are supposed to be set. You're mourning their death. But I mean, I just got numb. That was the thing. I, I was so numb too. And I feel like now I can't have, I have so little appreciation for life. I'm just going to be really honest here. Like I have virtually no appreciation for life. I don't really enjoy anything anymore. I mean, I find moments of enjoyment, but because you it, were robbed. Yeah. I was from robbed. Your joy. Like, my childhood is gone. Don't even ask me about my favorite childhood memory because I can barely remember my childhood. And even the good, even the kind of good memories are very tainted by like how I saw the world as a kid, what I was experiencing at home, which I'm not going to say everything, but yeah, I, it's weird experiencing so much death at a young age. I lost my best friend when I was 17, I think. Mm. And he actually died in an accident. It's kind of weird knowing the, the circles I was running. His was an actual accident. Um, but since then, I've just seen so much death. I'm just like, that sucks. And I hate that. It was such a such an awful way to see it. Like somebody is out there grieving their child's loss and they're a total mess. And I'm just like, that sucks. But yeah. I feel the same way about myself. I'm like, oh, if I don't wake up tomorrow. Whoops. Oh, well. Maybe I should have drank more water. No. Yeah. Like, I mean, but that life, events shape you and how you perceive life and death and um and how you live your life um and people i mean everyone has a different story and not everyone's story as is as traumatic as yours mine the next person but everyone has a story so not everyone can relate to what you're talking about for your story or for mine but there's someone out there who will be able to relate. Honestly, I think most people at, at our age, I think most people have faced some kind of existential crisis where they've really seen, at least caught a glimpse to the other side or like just having to actually face mortality. Like most people our age have known a good amount of people at this point. Who are I mean, at our, yeah, because we've lived three de- little over three decades. Yeah, three decades is a long, a lot happens in three decades. Mm-hmm. That's like if we live to 90, we're a third of the way through. That's a that's a huge chunk of time and a lot to experience. We've watched our parents grow older in like our siblings go from being little to being married with kids. And I mean, it's like, yeah, it, we've just seen so much. I, I really do think that I just saw too much too young and wasn't, I didn't have the tools. Yeah. Um, and it's unfair, but who? But but life isn't fair. I lived in the victim mentality, feeling like asking why, like everything was about why, like why am I feeling this? Why is this happening to me? Why whatever? But asking why is a waste of time. It is a total waste of time because life, whether you get the answer you want or not, life still goes on. Yeah, like yeah, the answer doesn't change that. And you can't go back in time to change the past. All you can do is accept the past as fair, unfair as it is. Yeah, pretty much. 
which sucks. It, well, I mean, it can be good, it can be bad, but it's all on your perception. Well, I saw this is kind of, probably shouldn't even say. I saw a TikTok recently. I feel like that's so embarrassing to say now, <laughs> but it was a good TikTok. Um, it was like this guy that I follow who just talks about new perspectives or whatever. And every once in a while, I'll see him pop up on my feed. And he was talking about how it's not good to ask the question why, which I've always felt that way for, for a long time. Oh, I've realized I, I did for the longest time or the what if. Yeah, the what if is bad too. What if I had done this? But the, the purpose isn't just to stop being inquisitive or like ignore everything. I mean, it's, it's about like a better question is what do I want? What do I want to accomplish? What don't I want? Like, what can I, what do I want to do right now? Like if I need to go to the gym, it's really not good for me to be like, why is my health so bad? Why was I given such bad? Why am I so skinny? Or like, why can't I gain muscle as easy as other people? Which might be true, but it doesn't matter because, because that's not going to help me. No, the gym. and then that person who you're, um, I'm not idolizing, but you know what, like wishing you had whatever they, they're probably looking at you saying, I wish, or why don't I about you? And yeah, but you don't, you're not at the gym or at Harris Teeters asking a random person, Hey, why don't I have that? You don't, you're not stopping and asking those questions to the random person, but they're, they're wishing or wanting or asking why they don't, they don't have some attribute that you have. That's so true. And which is really weird when you're, when your self-esteem is, I mean, I think nothing of myself. I really don't like, I don't. I, I'm not good at, at caring for myself or loving myself. So whenever I've been told that some, like somebody will be like, Hey, I've been, I got to admit I was jealous of you for whatever. Somebody told me that they were really jealous of what I had after I did a TV show a couple of years ago because they just thought that I won the TV show. I did really well and I was really proud of it and whatnot, but it comes with so many things. I won like a lump sum of money but I lost all of it pretty much to just having to pay people back or whatever. I mean, I didn't really get to keep any of it. Taxes are insane. The exposure doesn't really do anything unless there's some kind of follow-up game plan. Mm -hmm. And I can't say a whole lot, but I was basically set up for failure from the beginning, even though I was set up to do well, things went well afterwards. Nothing happens if the right deal isn't made or I, I probably can't say anything else about that, but no, yeah. And no, I don't. Yeah. But and people, we talked off air yesterday. Yeah. And it's just crazy. The conversation we had because f from some, a viewer, you think it's all rainbows and yeah, Skittles, hundred percent, but it's not. And I don't want to say anything that, you know, but that's what I'll say. Like, yeah, it's it not what it's perceived. It's definitely not from what a viewer side. There were so many things that I wanted nothing to do with that I had to do anyways. And there was a lot of like topics that I had to talk about that I did not want to discuss. And essentially the, this is only one thing that was a challenge in there just to give you an idea. But I was presented as, the sick person. I like, I had Crohn's disease and like, I need this cause I need to pay my medical bills and all that stuff. I wasn't even going to bring any of that up. I didn't want to bring that up because I knew what people would say. 
And they did exactly as I suspected. I knew people were going to say that wasn't your game plan going in. No, is what I'm granted. I knew when I did the interview before the show, I was like, well, I want to be a part of it and I want a chance to win that money and I need a career. So the exposure is good. So I'm like, you know, you got to play the game. You just do. You got to play the game. So of course I was like, well, I can use my story because I know they're looking for a story. It's television. And then I kind of was like, why did I say that much? Now they're going to like make this my whole personality. Correct. And it's not. Not at all. They didn't want to hear my like reasoning for certain choices in music or they didn't really want to hear my original music at all. It was like, this is your story. I don't get to pick like who cares if you're a musician, who cares what inspires you. It's all about your story. Wasn't the true you. Not at all. And the, the story was like, like I have a lot of health problems. Crohn's disease isn't even the biggest issue. Like that's minuscule. Mm -hmm. So to make it all about that was kind of like, this just feels so unimportant. Yeah. But as you said, TV and what sales, what sells, you know, stories and people, you know, want a juicy feel good or, you know, the victim and the totally um, antagonist. So, I mean, yeah, I get it. And I signed it. I mean, it's not like I didn't agree. Like I, I I had to do things that I had to do. It's just, that's what I agreed to. But, but there was a little, there's a nasty side that viewers that there definitely is until talking to you. I mean, I knew of, but I was just like, Oh Wow. After that little bit that we talked yesterday, I was like, oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Um, so you brought up health. Um, and, I mean, I know what Crohn's disease is a little bit. And you said that's not even, you know, a major for you. What has your health, um, I mean, because you've had, you know, two years as like, you know, I keep going back. because That's kind of where your story started on the episode um did you have these health problems um when you were at this facility if so were they I think, helping treat you um or was this later in life and um yeah I'm, so i didn't realize it till later in life i remember feeling like things weren't right in my body mm-hmm. growing up i remember feeling that I had certain pains in like my neck and my back or like my legs or whatever. It always felt like it wasn't supposed to be there. But whenever I would say like, ah, my, like my head really hurts. People would be like, shut up. Cause you're like, who cares? uh, You're a teenager. You're probably playing in the backyard or hormones. Exactly. Oh, it's hormones. Like, oh, you probably hit your head, whatever. And I believed it. Cause I was like, I guess it's fine. I didn't think much of it. And to be fair, it was tolerable. Mm Mm-hmm. So I thought if I can tolerate it, then it's fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. Per se. Per se. It's like we're just people. Sometimes people hurt. We're kids. and Yeah, especially as our a kid bodies running around. Away. Maybe it shouldn't or definitely yeah, cannot and I was at doing some 30. stupid <laughs> shit. So I'm like, I was kind of asking for it. What I didn't realize is I should have listened to my gut because, well, literally my gut, because my stomach is, there was so much pain constantly in my stomach, but I was... About 21 years old, I was in Los Angeles doing an internship. I was working in a studio, and 
things were going well. I, I sold my car to go out there. That's actually like a, a fun story for another time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was sitting there during a lecture one time and I just started feeling this weird thing in the back of my neck and I still don't know what it was, but it was just, it felt like a worm was like crawling inside, like under my skin I remember being like, this is so weird, but I was high out of my mind. I'd I was going like, to say, were you high and thinking? I was super high. Yeah, and I, so I, I, I knew <laughs> I couldn't rely on it. I was like kind of laughing at, laughing it off at first, but then I felt this like boom in my head. I mean, it felt like somebody struck me with lightning mm. and it was like everything, my ears were ringing, everything was pounding and I was like, what is going on? And I had to walk out. And I get embarrassed easily in situ- when it comes to like me being powerless or yeah. weak. Mm-hmm. I get really embarrassed because I used to get made fun of for passing out. I passed out a lot as a kid. I would just pass out for no reason mm-hmm. and people would laugh at me. Which so is I was not like, funny at all. No, it's not. I don't. And I was like, I, this can't happen in front of There's like a hundred people in this room. So I was like, I just have to get to my room, which is in the next building over. It's right there. So like I walk there, I get to my room. I'm fine. But then I pass out, then I wake up, my heart's pounding, I'm sweating, my chest is hurting. I'm like, I think this is bad. I think this is actually bad. So I actually called 911 and I was like in and out of consciousness. I was having a really hard time. And when they got there, they took my vitals and they were like, yeah, your heart rate's a little erratic. Um, you're, It looks like you have some kind of like heart heart like rhythm an AFib that type could, of it wasn't afib they did discover years later actually that i have afib mm. but they were saying like it looks like it could be a really really like you could go into cardiac arrest soon kind of so, like they uh and that was like one out of i don't know the stat but that hamlin the football player for buffalo he um for it was i think it was last season two seasons ago i can't remember but he uh, got hit and apparently in this millisecond of like, it's very rare that it could happen, but he went in cardiac arrest. Um, and there's um, a, um, um, he went to Charlotte Christian played basketball at app state. Um, and he's going to come on the podcast at a later cool. point. Um, Omar um, Carter. Um, but he went into cardiac arrest playing. I want to say it was at the Grady Cole center. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you're lucky to live through. Correct. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, I've, that have, that's happened to, and they don't survive it. A lot of people don't. So he's uh, a miracle and, um, he's got a foundation and he speaks, um, and does CPR training and different stuff that's like cool. that. Um, yeah, so and he just graduated, I think, from Queens, getting his master's. I want to say, but um, he's busy, so we're gonna get him on at some point. But yeah, nice rabbit hole moment. Um, cool. But yeah, like so that. cardiac arrest. The later discovered you have AFib later on down the road. Yeah, it was it, that. That was when things started because I knew things were just really off. I had a fever for almost a month, Jeez. and it would go up and down. It would come and go for like a month. And I'm not talking about like a like I'd sweat a little bit, have a hundred degree fever. It would shoot up to like 104. At one point, it was like 104.5, and then it would just go away. 
and it was a really strange experience. But I remember you, like, my bed, head hurting, bedridden, kind of. Because I mean, well, I was it's... bedridden for a little bit, and then I'd be like, I actually feel fine now, and I'd get up and try to do stuff, and I'd pass out. And that's I'd, why I was I'd wondering, heart like, rate or whatever. Yeah, it was. Were you was in and out of the hospital for that month, kind of, or were you? No, in fact, I was so stubborn when the the ambulance came. I felt better by the time they got there, even though they said I Did was. Did you drive yourself? Yes. To the, <laughs> I mean, you saved I yourself twelve hundred dollars. I know you more than that. It's like four grand. Jeez, but so I mean, I, you could have. Yeah, I could have died, but I mean, I'm stubborn too. With no so. debt. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I'm. I'm too stubborn for that shit. I know, I'm. Yeah, I am too. But <laughs> I've learned my lesson. I think now I probably wouldn't do that, but. It got to the point, like, I didn't tell anybody I went to the hospital. I just went. And when they asked me what I was doing, I said, like, I'm really not well. I went to go stay with my friend. And I couldn't have them know when I was in the hospital because that's embarrassing. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I went to the hospital. They kept me there for several days. I didn't tell a soul. In fact, so if I don't know if some of my friends will listen to this. They'll probably be like, oh, really? That whole time? But a lot of my friends knew I was sick too. They knew things were happening. Correct, but they didn't they know you were in know the hospital what it was. for. Yeah, they didn't know what it was. But th- it happened for years. I had to leave Los Angeles for like three months. I did a ton of tests in Charlotte. I stayed with a some family in Charlotte. Then I went back out there like a year later and tried to go back, get back into what I was doing. I was still sick. Things were just off, and they've never been the same since, honestly. Um, but some of the weirdest things that came with this was. I started throwing up blood for one. I started like just having really weird sensations. I'd go numb randomly. Um, they tested me for Lyme disease. It was negative. But then another doctor was like, that doesn't mean anything because you can easily test negative like 10 times for Lyme and still be positive. It just like hides in your bones, I guess. And there's lots of different types of Lyme disease. But ultimately I was like, well, if it's Lyme disease, you can't do anything anyways. So it doesn't matter if I have it or not because there's not shit you can do in late stage. Mm. So yeah, it was definitely a nightmare of an experience. There was a couple years where I was like, you know, I just have to get to the end of the day. I have to get to the end of the day because if I start thinking even a week in advance, I will off myself. Because and this I was sucks. about to ask you cause I've attempted suicide numerous times. Thankfully I wasn't successful. Um, I was going to add, because I knew you said as a, you know, a kid growing up, um, you know, you isolated a lot. I was going to, you know, with now, um, you know, this health um, issues going on at in your early 20s, um, you're all the way on the West Coast. You got, you know, family on the East Coast. Um, you know, you said a lot of friends didn't know you were in the hospital. So, I mean, these are very, this is a very tough time to go through as an individual. I mean, even with support group around you, but yet alone by yourself, not talking or letting people know, Hey, I'm getting tested for Lyme disease. I'm getting tested for X, Y, Z. So you're going through this by yourself. You know, most people think about, Hey, next week I got to do this. You know, my first tattoo is one day at a time because I couldn't think about the future because um, I was always so worried about the past affecting the future. How am I going to mess up in the future? So I literally had to do one day at a time, but that's easier said than done. So I was going to ask, you know, 
did suicide ever cross your mind? And you answered that the question, but what the, made the you only thing that kept me for, is that what you're about to ask? Yeah. I was going to say what made you, whether you might've attempted, I don't know, but you're still sitting here today. So mm. what got you through that? I never attempted, but I would do things because I, I wasn't sure about the afterlife at the time for one. And I didn't know what it would mean, but I did grow up in church and I remember just being terrified to do that. And I remember thinking the only thing scarier to me than death is life. <laughs> like living for another 50 years. If I grow old, that's terrifying. So you were so, stuck a rock between a hard place. Literally. Yeah. I, like, I was like, I really want I to end it, but I'm terrified of death, but I but, don't want to exist. I just wanted to like cease to exist. I wanted to snap my fingers and cease to exist. I see. Yeah. Which I think a lot of people, you probably experienced that. Too. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, I like just don't oh, want to do it and anymore. I'm, there's a lot of people that feel the same way. I would, oh yeah, you know, I and, bet I bet most people have. If, yeah, even if they point, don't admit it, I bet most people have had that moment. Oh, at some point in their life, you know, I would agree with that. Um, so, what got you through that time? Well, my fear of death saved me a couple times, but I also knew it's like, well, if I'm gonna stick it out, I need to get people involved. I can't do this on my own. People need to know that if I'm hanging out with them and I just pass out, they need to know what's happening because it's not fair to put people. It's not you're that. just randomly dehydrated and pass yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. You, there's a medical concern there's if you something pass happened. out. And I want. I had good friends, and I wanted. It was like, well, this will be the ultimate test. You know, if they want to be friends of mine, then they'll stick it out. And yeah. so most of them did. Some of them. Kind of fell through the cracks, but we weren't that close anyways. I don't feel like they really owed me anything. Mm -hmm. But And then there's people, and I've talked about some previous ones, where you have really close friends, and you think you're going to be in each other's lives forever, and then something happens, and you realize, oh, you weren't a true friend, actually. And I mean, at the time, it's hard, but now looking back, you're like, I'm glad for me, the Lord took that person out of my life. Oh, definitely. Because it was more of a, I don't want to say suffocation in a, you know, the relationship, but it was, it wasn't a true relationship and there was more giving than receiving. And there wasn't an equal friendship. Um, Well, I've been on the other end of that too, where somebody has like stopped being friends with me, cut off communication. And I'm like, and I realized that I was a vampire. You were the the taker. Really. I was the leech. Yeah, I've definitely been in that situation, and I've been I've been on both sides. I was gonna say yeah, many yeah. many times. I have, and there's, you know, I understand why people after a while were like, I just can't associate with you because yeah. I was a wild card. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I don't blame you, but then there's at the very beginning, it's like, well, why didn't you say something as a best friend? Why did you just throw in the white towel? That's how this, I this feel. This was like a first kind of occurrence. Well, you, know, there, or, you have to have like the proper balance in a friendship because my best friends are the ones that I can talk hella shit to and mm-hmm. they can say anything to me. They can be, it's about like accountability and if helping both, you grow as yeah. becoming the best version of you that you can. Definitely. And sometimes that's a good friend calling you on your bullshit when you don't want to hear it. Yeah. Those are the best. Friends. I mean, now exactly gotten to the point in my life now where if, if I haven't, disagreed on anything and i've known someone for a while i'm like are we really are we friends because there's no way you agree with everything i say correct and it's healthy to have 
discussions on opposing matters. It is, yeah. but in a respectful way, even if it's not true. But <laughs> I'm totally fine with. I would. I have no issue with somebody recently. I'm not going to say a name. He called me and basically blew up at me. He was like, "I can't believe you did this shit. Like that's so uncalled for. You're like a shitty friend. Let me have it." I was kind of laughing on that there because I'm like, he never says anything. I'm so glad he's finally speaking up. I felt so confident in our friendship in that moment because I'm like, this has been probably building up for Did a while. Did he have the, I mean, obviously he had the right to say it, but was he in? He wasn't 100% in the right, but it didn't matter because he voiced how he worked he, it out quickly. Correct, yeah. And he said what he needed but to say. But that's what I'm saying is when I say respectful, you can do that without walking away, being pissed at each other or feel viewing them less than yeah is what i meant by respectful yeah i guess in a way it was respectful because to me the most disrespectful thing you can do as a friend is to walk away and say nothing or go to bed go to bed mad yeah go to bed angry and then let it build up because it's not fair to the other person you might might not wake up the next day and you're wishing you had forgiven that individual um definitely so um and um so you have the health concerns and um i mean this is a big part of my story rehabs and treatment centers um but just briefly talk about this for a little bit you worked at one in la called dream center yeah um center. what got you involved um with working at a treatment center um and you know what was that like for um you because you've mentioned you know being high when you had that thing in um pain in your neck um so i'm not saying there's addiction but like what what is that there was okay okay. (laughs) um so but what was that like and what got you to want to work or working at a treatment center what drew me to it it's it's hard to explain the dream center if you don't know what it is and most people don't so it's kind of like it's like this huge facility that has all these different, like there's like a homeless shelter within it. There's like a rehab center. There's like different types of rehab within it. There's lots of different programs. There's a leadership program for people who are like, not sure if they want to go to college after high school, you know, like young 18, 19 year olds who are just looking to do something different. Internship program that has all these different programs within that. Like I chose the recording studio because I was But I went there with the intention of joining the like behavioral, just trying to get your life together program. So it was like they had rehab too, but it wasn't just for that. You could, you could choose to do it. Um, Most of them were court ordered and I went there with the intention of doing that. But when I got there and checked out the facility, I was like, I don't need that. I need a change of scenery. I need to get out of where I am and I want to pursue music career full time. A great place to do it i'll be in the right city which this is 11 years ago at the time that was the place to be now it's all online so you can be anywhere and do it mm-hmm. but yeah i went out there to pursue that instead and join the leadership program so there was a lot more freedom in the leadership program but it was like also an internship and i did the got you okay so you didn't That's go there, there to work as a counselor there you were in Not the directly. program while being an intern throughout yeah. th- within the program. And they had a lot of resources for the leadership program too. Gotcha. They had like people you could talk to and like it help you through things. So that was really good for me. 
even though that place was also corrupt, but every place is. Every place is corrupt. It totally is. I mean. There was a lot of good there, though. Yeah. And, a lot of really good. And that's something in life, as I've overcome a lot, and that doesn't mean I don't struggle, because we're always going to struggle, but it's how you cope and handle that struggle, um, you know, and get through it. Um, but. Yeah. I would always see the bad in either people, you know, institutions, whatever it may be. But now the last couple of years, you know, I've been choosing to see the good and it's can be hard. Um, you know, cause, um, there was a professor last semester I had online, didn't have the best interaction. Now, it's online and emails and the way you interact can be perceived differently. Going back to what we said earlier, you know, emails are dicey, two people looking at the same thing and it can mean two very different things. And so yesterday had her for a class and I was like, Holy cow. Like, She's amazing. Like, I like her a lot. Told, you know, my family, told everyone. I was like, I really like her. I was going into it, you know, a little uneasy, but I hadn't nailed that the, um, uh, hammered the nail into the coffin because online is very different than in person. But the old me would have said, nope, I'm not giving you a second chance. And I would have gone on, gone into that class with a piss poor attitude, F you, but I didn't. And it was an amazing, you know, first class introduction. And I'm excited to be in her class now. So it goes like the old me, I would have written that, you know, that professor off now. I didn't walked in an amazing experience in person. So it just goes to show it's how you perceive things. Um, choose the bad or choose the good. You know, there's always going to be good and bad. And that's hard especially when you're struggling in life, you're going to, you, you're more drawn to maybe look at the bad or at least I did, but I'm still wired that way. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. And it's also about who you surround yourself, content and stuff, stuff that I just used to never think about music. I would listen to shows I'd watch, you know, they were always like my favorite. There's a lot of there's a couple funny stories about this, but I won't get into those. But um, my favorite show is the first 48. It's a murder documentary on A&E. And it's, okay. you know, the first 48 hours after a murder. And it's like live document video of the not of the murder, obviously, but of the detectives on scene solving the murder. And that was my favorite show. I like wouldn't watch anything else. Mm-hmm. And. Obviously, and then I was listening to music that would correlate with that. And so it was just all this negative stuff. And once I was able to kind of step back and listen to people telling me, Hey, maybe you shouldn't watch that. Maybe, you know, eventually I was like, maybe you're right. And it's been able to allow me to, you know, have a more positive mindset because of things I listen and take in thousand percent. It, but easier said than done. Cause I love that show. <laughs> it's hard. To, I and mean, I've seen every episode, which <laughs> something like that. You probably could watch it in 
intentional ways. Not like fall asleep to it. Like and going see, to I bed would with fall something asleep like that. And it would be playing all night. That's so, not good. So it's no, like I know, subconsciously. That's what I'm saying. Constantly so, going into you. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, music seems to be a passion, hobby, you know, a love of yours. Um, we've talked about a lot of, um, you know, struggles, whether it's, you know, some traumatic events that have happened um, at the treatment center, um, health concerns, uh, just relationships. What is music? What does music mean for you? And has it been a place where you can kind of just be alone, an outlet for you, kind of an escape? What is music? Well, it's kind of kind of everything. <laughs> like I, it's all I think about when I'm free to think about it. If you ever see me just doze off, I'm probably writing something in my head. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's complete garbage. Like it's just, but um, I write a lot of lyrics that I never record. Some of them I have recorded though. Kind of, that's such a good question but i i never know how to answer it anytime somebody asks me what does it mean to me because it really depends on the situation like listening to music for me is a completely different experience from writing music i think most likely most musicians would say the same thing because the type of music i make isn't even something i usually listen to that's when i I've heard that from artists. It's very different listening and writing or performing or whatever. It definitely is. Cause I would say I can tell you what my music means to me. And I can also tell you what other people's music means to me. It's very different. Correct. But every now and then I'll hear a song that hits me so hard that it feels like it's mine. Like it feels like they're just telling my story. Or at the very least, they're like capturing some specific feeling that I thought only I had. And then at the same time, that might not be the feeling that they're trying to capture, but it still does that for me. Yep. And there's a song that I heard yesterday um, that I'm, and I might do like a solo episode, but, and play that song and talk about it. But it's Dear Alcohol by Dax. Um, And while alcohol wasn't my struggle, drugs were. Um, it's still related to me a lot. Um, just talking about, you know, using alcohol to numb those pains and not have to think about it. You know, drugs, that was for me. Like a breakup letter to alcohol? Kind of, yeah. Um, and it was just powerful. Um, someone sent it to me and I was listening to it and I was just like, holy shit, that's like, and I listened to it like 10 times in a row. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'd love to hear some of your music later on. Um, sure, yeah. I but, could plug it. Yeah. Plug my, my music. About the facility, I wrote a, f- a song about that called The Room. There's a lot of unreleased music that I'm still trying to figure out how and when. But I have a ton of stuff recorded right now. There's only two songs on Spotify. One is called The Room, and that's about my experience at the facility. The one um, when you were 13 or... Yep. Yeah, I'm one. sure there's a lot of emotions with there that song. Are. And it's a very bare song. Like, I like to do a lot 
in most of my songs, but the two songs that are up are, are like so bare. They're just very simple. But that song, I just wanted to capture the feeling of being, I guess, isolated. Yeah. Like how do you make someone feel alone with just a sound? Mm-hmm. It was hard for me to do that, but I mean, maybe it didn't do that at all. You could listen to it. I'll listen to it. And, um, <laughs> but that's what I was, that was the idea of it. Hmm. Tried to cap. I mean, it's so frustrating sometimes when you have something so important you want to write about and you just can't put it all into a song. You just can't. Yeah. And there's something that I've, um, that I wrote at a treatment center. Um, and it was two months prior to me overdosing and dying, basically I foreshadowed the outcome. Um, and I'll share that with you, but I've shared it on the podcast before. Um, but, um, well, there's a lot of your story that people can relate to. Um, so last question. Um, and I always ask every guest, and every answer is different because everyone um, has done life differently, has a different lens. Um, what advice do you have for listeners from just everything in your life? From my music? No, just in general. I mean, Listening. it can be for music, but just oh, all oh, your for listeners. Yeah. For this. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, but sorry, from, I don't. I don't mean to make everything about me. No, I mean, but this <laughs> is your episode, so that's a fair question. Um, what advice would you give whether it could be advice someone gave you, you learned a takeaway from, you know, your experience 13 to 16 at that treatment. Well, I guess program, I won't call it treatment center, the, you know, but just what is some advice that listeners could, you know, benefit from? Hmm. First thing that comes to mind isn't really advice, but it's aren't what they seem. Nothing is as it seems until you get like that sound I just made on here probably sound like yeah, he didn't. <laughs> but that's not real advice because that doesn't really help you. It's like when they think about and I always question. ask guests at the end and I don't tell them that question just to get something that pops in their head. So it's all, and I could ask you tomorrow or in 10 days and it could be very different. Well, the funny thing is I, I had something that came into my mind recently that I was like, if anyone ever asked me what, cause this is a common question and I had it in my mind. If in case anyone asked me and you're the first person since then to ask me, and I'm like, <laughs> but I honestly, I'm going to go back to what we said earlier. Stop asking why and just start asking, what do I need right now? That's, I agree 100%. Because then, while, if you're asking that why, then you're getting in your head and you're not in the moment and you're totally allowing those thoughts to race. Because That's why when, is the past version of what if? You have like, mm-hmm. Why did this happen? And what if this happens? Both of those questions are so not present. and They they follow suit with each other. I mean, anxiety is usually followed by depression and vice versa. Depression is like obsessing over the past. Anxiety is obsessing over the future. And they're both so not present. 
I also believe fully that those are legitimate psychological conditions. But I also think we give way too much credit to mental illness. I've seen it overused and sorry, not sorry to anyone listening that thinks that I'm downplaying their mental illness. I have been in the pits. Like I I've, experienced feeling so strong that I knew without any doubt, I was like, this is so real for me right now. This depression and anxiety are so real that nothing could be more real. I mean, I was so immersed in it. You don't have to be in that forever. Right. I've been diagnosed with severe depression and anxiety. And I would say I still have taste of depression. Totally. And I still experience anxiety, but I, it's not severe at all, and I now know how to cope and deal with oh, situations. Definitely. So you can overcome mental illness. You can work through it. Exactly, you can work through it, but and you can't do it alone. But a lot of people try and do it alone, and that's why they're stuck there. Yeah. If you want more advice, don't bother not doing it alone. I know you'll save your pride for a moment, but you're just going to look like a dumbass later because it's going to bite you. Just admit it. Admit you need help. Ask for help. Because everybody needs help. I don't care who you are. We do all need help. And be okay with bad advice because I've noticed that I used to do this, first off, before anyone comes for me. I used to seek advice, but I was seeking something specific. I wanted them to affirm me. I wasn't looking for advice. You wanted that affirmation. Yeah, I wanted them to tell me. You wanted to do and you wanted them to give you the answer of what you right. wanted to do. So you could be like, oh. I wanted them to give me the advice that I already had in my head. Correct. So I could justify, like, justify my terrible actions. Correct. And if somebody has bad advice, listen to them, just take it. If it's not good advice, you can throw it out later, but don't just like shut everything out immediately. I was one of those people. If somebody told me that, have you just tried this or just tried that with depression? I still get annoyed sometimes because I'm like, of course I have. I've tried everything. But I was so caught up in like using wearing that almost like a badge of honor. Like you can't touch this. This is my depression. This is my anxiety. It's not a badge of honor. I mean, you may have been through it. I've been through it. But don't you want out of it? Like, mm-hmm. do you really want out of it? Because maybe you can't, but don't you want to try? Isn't it at least worth trying? That's what got me was finally saying, even if I believe it can't happen, why don't I just try what could hurt if I just try? And it took forever. But fast forward 10 years, this is the second year now that I've been able to say something good about myself. And that's a huge victory. Because a lot of people be like, yeah. well, what? That's the easiest thing. It's not. Yeah, it's definitely not. When you believe that you're just the scum of the earth. You and you say it daily. You're affirming yourself that you're the scum of the earth. You're going to live like that. You're going to believe it. And you're going to become everything you do will be through that lens. And you think someone who tells you you're a bundle of joy, you're like, you're lying. Yeah, I used to. Yeah, I used to be like, either you're lying or you're a dumbass because there's no way. No one believes that. Nobody could possibly care about me at all correct not lovable yep and it's it's hard to see that when you believe that you're the scum of the earth especially if you aren't aware of your own narrative in your head that's why it's important to give yourself some of those cheesy whatever it's cheesy but just do it like Mm -hmm. self-affirmations 
like, hey, you look good today, whatever, whatever you got to say in the mirror. I started writing things on my mirror and I started writing because my biggest thing was my health. I started writing I'm healthy on the mirror and I didn't believe it for the longest time and I still don't. But just having that thought that I believe it's possible, it eases the pain a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then over time, I've noticed that my health, it's a mess. But I've been able to do things in spite of my health that I never thought were possible. Like even going to the gym at all. Yeah. Especially regularly, which I've been doing. Don't underestimate the power of belief. And don't underestimate your own power to convince yourself of something over time. Because you can do it. Mm -hmm. You can actually trick yourself over time into believing possible. And eventually, maybe they become possible. Maybe they don't, but it doesn't hurt to try. That's amazing advice. You know, all of that um, and stuff that we forget um, because we come either become complacent or we don't believe in ourselves. Um, but yeah, that's another thing that people that's a tough don't feel to swallow. But it's it's true. Um, well, thank you just for sitting down, um, and just sharing some of your story, just having discussion about life, depression, anxiety, health, um, and, um, look forward to seeing, you know, where the future takes you with, uh, your career, um, building a friendship. Um, so just thank you for your time, vulnerability, um, and it's, you know, I'm glad I woke up yesterday to text, uh, um, you know, and can record an episode and um, hear someone else's story um, and being able to get me back into the studio to record and, um, you know, get people's stories out there because um, someone's story is going to help at least one person. And whether it helps one or a million, it at least helps someone struggling, just knowing that they're not alone and you know, we still are living our story and still have struggles, but just talking and speaking on it makes a big difference rather than keeping it in and um, pushing it down. And someone listening can be like, oh, I can relate to that. So I'm not alone. And that can make a huge difference in that person's, you know, day to day, their life. So I appreciate Lincoln. And thank you for your time. Um, how can people find you, you know, Reach out if you want. Um, I would listen say, to your music. Um, thanks for giving me that opportunity, by the way. Um, yeah. I would say Instagram is the best place to find updates and everything. I am on Spotify and Apple Music and other platforms. Um, but there's only two songs up right now because I'm trying to figure out everything contractually and what I can and can't do and all that. But I do have songs that are practically ready for release, like a lot of songs. Um, all that being said, go to Instagram. That's where you'll find everything. I have a link tree on there that posts. And I'll tag you service. when I put okay. um, something up so people can click or um, and yeah. find you easily. Um, yeah, Kalanoda, C A L I N O D A, one word. Kalanoda. Where that's my name on Instagram. Cool. Well, thank you again, um, and thank you all just for tuning in this week, episode eighty six first episode of the new year 2024 um and uh love y'all share um subscribe um 
tune in because um, we all have a story. We all have struggles. And the good news is we're not alone. No matter how hard, how dark it gets, um, you're not alone. As we talked about, it's easier to do it with other people rather than do it alone. Um, so find your support group. Um, if you're going through something, reach out to me. Would love to connect, but um, stay tuned for next week. Thank you all.